welcome to the 15 past 15 podcast season two. Uh, my name is Martin Dusenberry, and in this season we're going to be talking about wealth and the writing of history and on this topic we're absolutely delighted to be joined by Professor Maria Sullivan from the University of Geneva who has just uh, stepped off the stage from giving the keynote lecture at the fifth congress of the Swiss Historical Association here in Zurich. Uh, Mary, it's great to have you here today. Thanks very much for inviting me. Uh, you may also be able to hear in the background the bells that are ringing to celebrate Mary's presence here <laughs> in this interview. Where we apologise for that. And I'm also joined by my colleague, uh, Simon Teuscher, who teaches history here at the University of Zurich. Simon, thanks for being with us. Hello. Do you want to go? Oh, oh do I start with a question? Yeah. Okay, do central actors in the economy, such as central bankers, learn from history? Uh, yes, I think um, some of the work I've been doing recently on the Federal Reserve System in the United States during the 1920s and um, leading up to even the creation of the Federal Reserve System in 1913 suggests that they really do. They look back, maybe not quite as systematically as some of us would like, but I think they are quite often inspired by historical examples to do things or avoid things. Um, one of the issues, though, that's come up in some of the work I'm doing on this, um, lessons of the past, if you like, is that uh, sometimes, which I think many of us historians don't want to hear, some of what they learn from the past may actually make them take their eye off the present. So it's a kind of an interesting tension. Maybe the single most far-reaching economic crisis in recent history was uh, the Great Depression. Uh, what do they learn from the Great Depression? Yeah, I think this is a really good example, a very um, uh, vivid example of looking back to the past to try and learn lessons for the present. But one of the points I made in my keynote address that I just gave here uh, was that the whole process of constructing those lessons is fraught with all kinds of uh, contestation about different political ideals, um, different academic standards. So I think it's uh, one of those kinds of issues that historians really have a lot to say about. Good. So in your lecture, uh, you make this argument about uh, how the uh, lessons of the past are actually not lessons. By starting off, you take as a case study this very famous book by Milton Friedman and Anna Schwartz, A Monetary History of the United States from 1867 to 1960, which was published in 1963. Uh, what's the key argument of that book? Uh, the key argument of that book is that the main reason why the Great Depression happened, and what we mean by the Great Depression, uh, is that there was a huge drop in uh, the national income of the United States and a big rise in unemployment. And what they argue is that that can be explained mainly because the supply of money in the economy, in the US economy, dropped drastically mainly because of a crisis in the country's banking system. But the really key point in their argument is that this was a drop that really didn't have to go on, that there were actors in the economy, and in particular um, actors in the central bank, that really could have done something about it. They could have stopped the crisis if they had acted differently. What school of thought did uh, this book replace? Uh, I think that coming out of the Great Depression, uh, there were uh, a huge amount of confusion, as you can imagine, about what were the real fundamental causes of it. So I think we see a lot of contestation uh, around that uh, issue. 
I think if there was one thing that, that people cling to, it was less about the interpretation of what happened and more about some kind of solution to take uh, the United States and other countries suffering from the Great Depression out of this situation. And there's no question that I think Keynes' arguments, John Maynard Keynes' arguments, became very alluring to, to people uh, in that regard. Um, but you know, at the time of the Great Depression when policymakers had to act, they didn't necessarily use those ideas. Uh, so the famous example is Roosevelt, who was not a Keynesian. Um, and so the actions that he, he took at the time, like closing the banking system, um, were actions that he had to take on the fly, if you like. They were pragmatic responses to the crisis. So one of the things you were quite funny about in your lecture was the actual language in which Friedman and Schwartz wrote their book, the use of the modal verbs of if X had happened, Y could have happened or would have happened. Uh, can you say a little bit more about that? Uh, yes. I mean, as I mentioned in the lecture, um, a lot of the argument is built on a counterfactual, and so the use of would have occurs I mean, in a, with a, an incredible frequency in the book. I think I said 466 times for would have. Um, and it was a little naughty of me to say this, but only because um, some of the people who've read the book have commented on its nice writing style, and I think this tells you more about the way economists write, perhaps, than about the book itself. So then the book itself actually became a, a classic. <laughs> and yet one of your arguments is that the reason it became a classic was not because it was beautifully written, but because historians weren't actually doing their job correctly. Is that right? Yeah, I don't think it's a beautifully written book. Uh, I think it's a very hard book uh, to read, but in many ways that's a testament to its, some of its qualities. Um, it's not a bad book, that's for certain, it makes a serious historical argument. Um, and so the challenge of pulling down the argument that it makes, uh, which I don't think is correct, is a major one that, that no one has really taken on successfully yet. So um, in many ways, I think the fact that this has come down to us as telling us the lessons of history tells us not so much about what they did, but about how we didn't react to it. But you were quite precise about when historians didn't react to it. You have um, numbers of how the book really wasn't cited much in the serious economic history journals in the United States in the 60s and 70s, for example, and, and you use this very telling phrase that um, historians had a kind of shrunken view of the past in this period. How do you explain that lack of engagement with it? Yeah, that surprised me when I um, really went to look, to look carefully at who had cited it when. I expected to see it being much more prominent in the history journals, um, and it's not. And insofar as economic history is concerned, this was a period of, of, of transformation in, in the field of economic history where uh, there was a lot of combat going on between a new type of economic history coming out of economics, a cleometrics type of uh, economic history, and an older style that's more familiar to most people as historians. Um, so I don't know, I mean, could it be as banal as it fell through the cracks? Uh, probably not, but I think some of the people who could have taken it on chose not to. Um, so Robert Fogel's a good example at the University of Chicago. Um, and I think asking why that might have been or, or, or looking through some of the personal papers to see would be interesting. What's the bigger significance of this central position the book of Friedman and Schwartz has uh, attained? Uh, to me, I think it really evokes um, the very narrowness of the relationship that's been forged between economics and history uh, through what we call conventional economic history. Um, it's really only a, a slice of, of what 
economic thinking has generated for us, and it's not necessarily, but here I'm biased, the most exciting slice of the history of economic thought. So I think there are a lot of really interesting ideas in economics um, n now and in the past uh, that historians could use um, to, to, to shape their work, to inspire their work. Um, but that's not happening right now. So the lessons aren't really lessons at all. No, I, uh, certainly we can't take them as in some kind of passive way as, as flowing self-evidently from um, a common understanding of the past. I think the, the real aim of my talk was to show how, how constructed these lessons are. Um, and when, when we see that, I think the, the issue is what do we do about it? And I was trying to exhort uh, people to really, when they, when they read economic history, when, when they read these interpretations, is to really think about what ideas are, are behind them and, and whether there's contestation about those ideas, which of course there always is. This is a, a, a bold and challenging position, I think both for economists and also for historians. I, I wondered if you think there's anything about your own personal roots into academia that has brought you to this position in, in some of your work you've written about your childhoods in Dublin, about your training in a very different world to academia, um, would you like to say anything about maybe how you've come to this position somewhat unusually? Uh, recently I gave a talk um, in a history department, actually the history department in Chicago, and somebody described my style as pugilistic and uh, in contrast to the more um, common deliberative styles in history. And I, I think that's true. So I suppose the pugilistic, not to caricature my um, home country, but probably does come somewhere from my being Irish. Um, but I think it also was forged in doing a PhD in economics and very quickly seeing some of the limits of the mainstream thinking that I was um, being exposed to. Uh, I think many people who have a more heterodox view, if you like, do end up uh, being combative. Um, and that can be tiring sometimes, but I think it also has a potentially creative role. I mean, I think you wrote in one of your essays, The Intelligent Woman's Guide to Capitalism, which is a brilliant title, um, that you actually really, I mean, you use the word lie in relation to the language of free market economy that you're exposed to in Harvard at the business school there. Yeah, people balk sometimes at that kind of language, um, but I think this, this really was uh, the moment at which I realized what a pretense um, some of these uh, arguments and theories were. Uh, when you look at how uh, mainstream economic thinking for the entire 20th century and into the 21st century has dealt with large enterprises which dominate uh, our uh, economies today, um, largely by ignoring them, denying them, trying to corral them into um, theories of, of markets, uh, I think this really points to one of the really fundamental weaknesses of the way we think about um, capitalism. What should economic historians be looking into today? This is a question that my master's students ask me all the time when they come to my office uh, despairing because they can't find a topic and I just don't understand it. If I were starting again, it just seems to me like there's just thousands of things that I could work on. I think uh, one of the really um, uh, big problems we fight against in trying to encourage people to, to study economic history and do research in there is that they have an image of what e economics is about which is so arid and that's not the way I see it at all. To me it opens up into so many issues, links to everything in our culture, all kinds of social organization, um, political questions, 
but you have to, I think, be willing to ask economic questions in ways that open up to um, other fields, other disciplines. And that's always been the way I've wanted to do it, within the limits, obviously, of my own competence. But that's very interesting because um, I think there's a default position, certainly among historians like myself, who are very much not uh, economic historians, uh, that somehow in order to speak to economists, we have to speak their language. And, and you're very much saying, no, that's the wrong approach, right? Yes, I mean, I think if the only way to talk to uh, someone is to speak his or her own language, then chances are they're probably not worth talking to very much in the first place. So I think that in encouraging historians to take economic phenomena more seriously, it's not necessarily about talking more to economists. Um, I think it's coming at economic phenomena from the points of views that historians are, are good at developing. And so, for example, uh, consumption. What do people buy? Why do they choose the goods they choose? Um, this is an area that's opened up in, in recent decades in a really exciting way. Uh, and I think that economic historians have not been at the cutting edge of that work at all. That cultural historians have been doing that and social historians, but I think it provides enormous new material for anyone thinking about the economy material life. Does, do you call the aridness of uh, current economic history uh, stand in the way of asking more fundamental question about what is wrong or dangerous with capitalism? Yes, I mean, y you might even say that it sometimes seems like it's designed that way. Um, certainly, mainstream economics looks like that. I mean, if you can't even see these large corporations in your models, then it's hard to study the profits they make, for example. So I think to the extent that economic historians take over those ideas and content themselves with this narrowness, I think it's, it's really dangerous. Uh, and, and we cannot give critical perspectives on how the economy has evolved. And I think it also comes out of a sense that people want to speak to power. They want to, to influence policymakers. Uh, there's nothing wrong with that up to a point, but I don't think that's, as economic historians, what we really should, what our vocation is. Um, I think we also have a responsibility to, to people to critique what those in power are doing too. And I don't think that responsibility is very much felt within um, much of mainstream economic history. Are crises part of the normal course of a market economy? I think if the economy was just a market economy, they probably wouldn't be. Uh, I think th that's why the concept of capitalism is often used by people who are interested in emphasizing a certain type of dynamic that comes out of the relationship between profit and investment that I think is at the root of crises and cycles. Um, at least when I look through the history of economic thought, the very important line of reasoning that comes out over and over again in very, very different thinkers from Marx to Schumpeter to Wesley Clare Mitchell to Keynes is something about this connection between profit and accumulation. Uh, so were I to go looking for this, that's where I'd focus. So you've talked about um, the uses of the past, historians not using the past in, in um, appropriate ways or engaging with it uh, through non-engagement. Uh, in the example that you gave. Do you think that another way in which historians avoid uh, thinking seriously about the past is to label it as unprecedented, that somehow if we have an unprecedented crisis in 2008, 2009, it's a way of avoiding seriously engaging with the 1930s or with previous crises? I'm not sure it leads historians to avoid engaging with previous crises, but it certainly makes them nervous about 
engaging with this crisis. Um, and so the example I gave in the talk is of Adam Tooze's new book, Crashed, um, in which he says this is historically unprecedented crisis, and then he studies it, probably in more detail than anybody else has. Most of us aren't bold enough to do that. So I do think there's something in here um, about historians feeling nervous about engaging in debates about ongoing crises. Um, what that does um, to their work about the past, I'm not sure, uh, because I think there's a, another uh, line of reasoning that, that you often hear, uh, which is that the past is always different. Every crisis is different. And I think the danger with that kind of logic is that there's this stark difference between ideographic and nomothetic and never the twain shall meet. And what I'm trying to argue is that just because you see historical specificity doesn't mean that you can't make generalizations. And mostly, if you're interested in the economy, you have to try and do both. And there's no reason why economists should monopolize that. They need historians to do that properly. Mary O'Sullivan, thank you very much. It's been a pleasure to be here. Thank you.